Good evening and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible Study in the Book of Revelation. Tonight we'll be studying number 19. And we're currently reading verse 6 of Revelation chapter 1. And it says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In our last study, we were looking at the opening phrase of this verse, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. And we saw how God is referring to spiritual truth that his people have become a royal priesthood. We are kings because the Lord Jesus Christ is king of kings, and we are of the family of Christ. And we're priests because the Lord Jesus is the great high priest for his people. He is a priest, an eternal priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Actually, Melchizedek is a reference to Jesus himself. And so we likewise are given a priesthood where we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. It could involve various things, but primarily it would involve the sacrifice of ourself. And as God moves in us by his spirit to take up our cross and, and to offer up ourselves, we would uh, find ourselves doing the will of God in whatever area that he wanted us to do it. And during the day of salvation, we would be getting involved in ministering the gospel so that people might hear and the lost sheep of God's elect might hear the gospel and become saved. But in these days, after the tribulation, after the day of work in ministering the gospel in evangelizing the world has come to an end, we are given another task. Let's just talk about that for a second before we move on. In Luke 17, uh, Christ gives a little parable that has application to these days since the Great Tribulation ended in verses 7 through 10. I'm just going to read a couple of the verses here, beginning in verse 7. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by when he is come from the field, go and sit down to meet? Now, here God is speaking of one of his servants, that's what's in view, who had a task to perform of plowing or feeding cattle, and he was busy doing it out in the field. But now he's come out of the field, just as in the parable of the vineyard, where men are hired to go to work for the day, and we find that they work for a 12-hour day. And that's what uh, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, are there not 12 hours in the day? 12 hours in which we must work. And then in John 9, we read that the night comes when no man can work. There is a spiritual work day in which God evangelized the world and had his people heavily involved in getting the gospel out so that all could hear. And that's now finished. That work has been accomplished. 
and so the day has ended. And and likewise, with this servant, he was uh, actively involved in plowing and feeding cattle, but now he's come from the field. That is, the, the sun has set. The workday is over, and it's time to go. And notice it says, well, I'm sorry, I have to read a little further. Which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet? Now, the the servant may be looking for a meal and, and for comfort and relaxation, because the work day is over. Well, God is saying, no, not yet. Not yet. The servant has another job to do. It says in verse 8, And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. And we can relate this to what Jesus said in John 21 after the great catch of fish was brought in. And that great catch of fish, the 153, points to the great multitude that were brought in by the gospel net, a net that did not break because it was outside of the churches and congregations that God saved these people. And and the great multitude was brought to Christ, but... The fishermen had another job as Jesus spoke to Peter and he told him, feed my sheep three times uh, after the fish were brought in. Now feed my sheep. And that relates to this passage after the servant comes in from the field. No, you cannot sit back yet. It's not quite time. There is one more thing to do. And that is to give me food and give me drink. And remember in Matthew 25, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus pointed out that when someone uh, had done this to one of his people, they had done it to him. That is, feed them or give them drink or clothe them. And that's what this is saying here. As we share the truth of God's word at this time, We are continuing to do the will of God and continuing to serve him, whatever the Lord wants. He he is God. He is far wiser than us. We don't know everything. We just submit to the will of the Father. Okay, let's continue here in verse 6. And has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. And we mentioned last time, how this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. Christ, the Son, is God. And in that sense, God and his Father. And there is no problem whatsoever. It's a very straightforward statement. Well, now uh, to the last part of verse 6. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory and dominion. We find the word dominion translated as power in a few places, including Colossians in chapter 1, verse 11. 
strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. So they're referring to um, eternal God, his glorious power, glorious dominion. And also in the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, verse 13, it says, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. That's very similar language to our verse um, in chapter 1, verse 6. It, it is just a statement of praise, of recognition also, that God is glorious uh, and he is almighty, all-powerful. He rules uh, over the vast kingdom of the kingdom of heaven. That is his dominion. His dominion is over all things. And so he must be extremely powerful to be such a great king and great ruler that rules over such a tremendous kingdom. Well, now let's just look at this wording forever and ever. And of course, this is very common in the Bible. This language, actually, I wouldn't say it's unique to the Bible, but uh, of course, uh, it is the Bible that spends such a good deal of time focusing our attention on eternity. The The world doesn't do that all that often. It may make mention of eternity now and then. But the world's focus is on today, now. The things of this world, the things you can see, the things that are all around you, how you feel, and what's going on in your life right now. It's a very uh, temporal focus that the world has. It, it's everything that is uh, within eyesight or or um, in in their view, uh, whether that day or or perhaps they're thinking a couple of days in advance. Uh, although some in the world do make plans for years in advance with retirement and things like that. And that's about the limitation of the person who dwells in this earth. They they don't want to think about eternity future because that would mean thinking about their death. And they're very uncomfortable thinking about death and about what comes after death. But that's the nature of the Bible. And, and uh, the people of God aren't uncomfortable with death or the things that come after death. Actually, the Bible says that to die is gain. And that is the viewpoint and the perspective of the child of God. It is a blessing to enter into the presence of God, and that's what happens when we die. When we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord, and we begin that perfect existence. Of course, it's not complete until we have our new resurrected body, 
but it's a far better state and condition to be in than living in this life. But let me just say also, though, that we we also have to be careful that we don't allow those kinds of thoughts, because we have such um, a beautiful and glorious future in front of us, where the Bible has nothing bad to say about it at all. It's all good. It, it's all wonderful. It's all blessing, rich, abundant blessing of God forever and ever and ever. And and when we look at our present troubles and difficulties, and they can be many, and they can come in all different ways, uh, just just physical ailments as we age and and so on, and financial things and and problems in our family, problems with neighbors, and problems here and problems there. It's it's a world full of trouble, and even though of course we can have pleasant times and and good times, they're they're always uh, tempered by the things that uh, happen every now and then, and we may have a loved one die, and so on. There's always sorrow, always pain mixed with the things of this life, and our uh, rejoicing times are are normally, um, at a minimum, as we live in this world. Well, the child of God can know these things and realize it's very tough here it's very hard and it's and it's going to be so wonderful there and and so that that's fine that's uh healthy that's exactly what god would have us to do to keep our thoughts on things above and look forward with that great expectation that we will one day enter into the joy of the lord and have everlasting life in its fullness Yet we have to be careful that we don't start thinking, well, uh, I just want to die. I just want this life to be over. And and we cannot despise this life. We're here for a very definite reason and a distinct purpose. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. We're here because God wants us to be here. And so this is exactly uh, where we should be and we should never think of leaving this life or of ourselves taking any kind of action that we would leave this life the moment we start to maybe play around with that kind of thought in our mind even for the littlest bit we have stepped over the line and turned something good and wholesome that is, that expectation of things to come, into something sinful and ugly. We have taken to ourselves something that doesn't belong to us. It's up to God. He's the creator. He's the one who determines when we're born into this world. He's the one that determines the course of our life in this world. And he's the one who determines when our life comes to an end. We have no right, it's not our business, to think about um, terminating our life in order to avoid suffering. 
That is not the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not go to the cross and die in order to avoid suffering. He went to suffer for his people, to sacrifice himself and to be afflicted and and to experience great trouble for the sake of the elect. And that is to be our desire as he is our example. We are to endure hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And we are to thank the Lord when we're afflicted because it is very possible he's brought that affliction our way in order that we might take heed to his word. We are not to go beyond what God allows. And God will take us, if if it's his will, in his timing. We don't have to hurry it along at all. No matter how long we're here, so be it. That's the will of God. So may all of us, as we know, things are hard. Things are are difficult and trying for every child of God. We're being severely tested. But may we all gird up the loins of our mind. And and that is, quit ourselves like men. Live as children of God. And if we're severely afflicted and severely tried, then let us not run to uh, the escapism of wishing that our life were over, but let us run to God and cast these things upon him and crying out to him for his strength, that his perfect will would be done. And it is according to his perfect will that you and I are living right now in the condition and in the place, in the position exactly where God wants us to be, in the home where God would have us, in the job, in the social status, in the country, in the city, in the town, and so on, exactly where God would have us to be. And and so we must accept and humble ourselves under the mighty hand or will of God and submit ourselves to him. And wait on the Lord in a good way, waiting on him to complete what he has begun in us and waiting on him to complete his judgment process upon the unsafe people of the world. And and so we have a need of patience until he brings these things to pass. And the Bible tells us, that it is the trying of our faith that develops patience. And so we have had our faith tried for a period of time, and hopefully we have had patience working in us, developing and maturing. And of course, ultimately, patience is the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Bible says, In your patience possess ye your souls. And and that can only refer to Christ. In Christ possess we our souls. And as a result, we are all being tried and tested to see if we have patience, that is, Christ, within us. And the test will prove and demonstrate 
whether we do have the patience who is the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have his spirit, or if we lack patience, we will fail the test and finally or at some point we will be burned up in this intense spiritual flame that God has kindled in the earth at this time. Well, the words here, forever and ever, I'd just like to mention them before we conclude our study today, forever and ever, and the word ever and ever is a translation of the Greek word aeon, aeon, and and again, this is my attempt to pronounce it, it is plural in this verse, and and this word is translated a few different ways. And of course, as we search the Bible, we allow God to define his own terms. And, and as we find a Greek word translated in a few different ways in our English language, this gives us various possibilities for the correct translation. And, and so we would try to plug them into the verse and see how it fits. And it could turn out that this is the proper translation for this verse. But this word is translated as world in a few verses in Matthew 13. And it's not just here, but this is just an example of one way or a word, a different word that aeon is translated in Matthew 13, verse 22. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. That is the same Greek word aeon translated as world. And uh, likewise in verse 39, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. Verse 40 as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. And verse 49, so shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. So Aeon, four times in this one chapter, is translated as world. It's also translated as world in Matthew 24. In verse 3, and this um, phrase, forever and ever, will come up a few times in the book of Revelation. So we'll have more opportunity to go over this. And and it's fairly complicated, and I don't think we'll uh, have a full understanding of it at this time. But the more we read and and consider things like this and become familiar with it, the more comfortable we become with what God is doing, and that helps us understand things better in the long run. It says in Matthew 24, verse 3, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Aeon. Again, now, Just think, there is another Greek word that certainly God could have used, cosmos. And and that is a a typical Greek word to describe the end of this world. 
if God were saying um, the word world, well, he could have used that. But he decided in these places to use this particular word. And that's what is very interesting about it. And I don't think, again, at this point, we're going to know exactly why. But let's turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. And we'll find the Greek word aeon translated two different ways. One is in verse 2, where it says, Wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world. And the word course is aeon. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And we wonder, well, that's an unusual use of that word. And a little further down in verse 7, that in the ages to come, the word ages is the word aeon. It's plural here as it is in Revelation 1. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. This is speaking of eternity future, and eternity future is referred to as ages to come. Now, we see these various uh, uses or translations of the Greek word aeon, world, course, ages. And when we come back to our verse in Revelation 1, verse 6, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever, well, we could read that for ages and ages. And and that would carry the same sense. But what's interesting is that God is referring to that which is to come. We saw in Ephesians 2, 7, and also here, um, it, it is looking towards the future, ages and ages. But there also is an age of this world. The references in Matthew 13 and Matthew 24, verse 3, which shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the age. So God refers to this present world as an age. And we're familiar with that term because we speak of the church age coming to an end. Well, God speaks of the age of the world, uh, of the generation of man, a generation of evil that lives in this world coming to a close. Well, we'll uh, think about it a little bit more when we get together in our next Bible study.